Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good start to your week. And it seems like it's been a while since I was on the air last. But in actuality, it hasn't. But sometimes, or to a degree, it does. But nonetheless, I'm I'm glad to be back on the air with you all. You know, we certainly did learn a great deal uh, from the previous uh, podcast. We had to take in a lot of um, unpleasant information and what I mean by unpleasant is knowing that the rebel rouser, maybe he should be considered more than just a rebel rouser, Nathaniel Bacon, but that's really the the most appropriate 101 description of him. But we, but we sadly learned that Nathaniel Bacon um, went as far as um, gui- guiding his uh, followers below him to take matters into their own hands by uh, setting Jamestown ablaze. So we have to now wonder, how can government recover from this? I mean, will there still be the same style of governing that had been in existence up until this rebellion? And maybe I say this because... Uh, History has shown that when uh, one institute of government gets overthrown in certain nations, when rebels or um, dissidents overthrow one form of government, we we have to wonder, can those people work together to form something different? And if they can, how long will the new government itself last? So we almost have to wonder here in Jamestown, 1676, we're left to wonder, late 1676, now that the the capital has been set ablaze, will there still be the same style of governing? Will there still be rulers, or maybe not so much rulers, will will there still be people over time, who can step back in and restore some form of order. Or, if that's not the case, and knowing knowing what Nathaniel Bacon himself has accomplished, the bigger question would be is, okay, what if something happened to Nathaniel Bacon over time? Does he have people in line ready to take his place? In other words, are there people below him whom are willing to die for the same cause, for the same causes, as Bacon himself uh, would have uh, done so. So, we have a lot of ground to cover in this uh, podcast segment, but I would say that this segment will um, is going to address um, some things that might pertain to how uh, Jamestown's going to recover in the midst of the um, unthinkable, or the unspeakable, I should say. That is, Jamestown was set ablaze. Now we've got to go forward and and find out for ourselves how is Jamestown going to uh, recover going forward. So our first leadoff question is going to be the following. Prior to Jamestown's um, burning come mid-September of 1676, had Crown officials received enough intelligence findings? What I mean by Crown officials here, folks, are... uh, those officials 3,000 miles across the ocean from London, England. So do you all think that uh, prior to Jamestown's burning, had Crown officials received enough intelligence? 
I would say that the answer is yes. It's fair to say that London's Crown officials had received adequate news reports from Governor Berkeley and his council, which can be traced as early as uh, spring of 1676, when the first reports came in as to um, the early signs of uncertainty, the early signs of what would be potential trouble involving uh, Nathaniel Bacon and and his um, ragtag band of uh, followers. Now, probably in the spring of 1676, it would be fair to say that there weren't as perhaps as many followers compared to um, when it, the time got closer to where numbers started amassing. Because remember, movements, they start out small in terms of getting people to come along. Sometimes they can be much bigger, but sometimes they actually start out smaller. But once enough momentum is garnered, they the numbers will swell. They will rise to, to the point to where um, if the other party does not, um, if the other party doesn't, um, understand just how serious the movement itself is, then they're putting their own people in harm's way. And not just their own people in harm's way, but perhaps the government in harm's way. So yes, uh, London's Crown officials did receive adequate news reports from Governor Berkeley and his council, which first arrived overseas to them uh, in the spring of 1676. And who is the King of England in 1676, is it King Charles II, King George III, or um, or King Edward VIII? The answer is choice A, King Charles II. You know, King Charles II uh, has a lot of issues himself to be concerned about. Now, this might sound odd, but it is true. Okay, for starters, what is the biggest um, commodity that's being sent from Virginia to England? I think we all should know this one. Tobacco. Tobacco is king crop. It's the most lucrative cash cash crop. It's been the most lucrative cash crop uh, since probably uh, the start of the 1620s. Tobacco is what has literally saved the Virginia colony. And as we all know, tobacco is used for a, a wide variety of purposes, such as paying off debts. Uh, tobacco is used to, um, it's given, it was given to uh, ministers who performed uh, wedding services. Tobacco was used for all sorts of things. So is tobacco being sent overseas to um, England? Yes. So, is Virginia importing or exporting the tobacco to England? We're exporting it, meaning that we're shipping it to them. And so, therefore, England is the importer of the tobacco. They are the receiver of it. So, for King Charles II, the reason why he's very concerned about tobacco is because with what is now taking place in England, in Virginia... It's not just so much government buildings that have been destroyed, but how about people's properties, farms, people who grow tobacco, harvest it. Where does that tobacco have to be placed into, folks, after the leaves have been dried? 
they've got to be placed into uh, hogsheads, those big barrels where you can um, where you can place um, large loads of tobacco into these uh, massive barrels where they will be uh, placed onto ships and sent 3,000 miles across the ocean for England uh, to consume, for the people of England to consume, I should say. So for King Charles II, he is very concerned about the loss of annual revenue from primary goods like tobacco. And because he's concerned about the, the, the loss of annual revenue, this means that he would have had to that he would have to go before on uh, Parliament's behalf asking for subsidies. What are subsidies? They are alternative goods, alternative goods that can modify the situation to where some revenue can be replenished, but also knowing that a lot of revenue still won't be able to be um, made up for, given that. Um, with the recent um, series of events that have now unfolded in Virginia, King Charles II knows that his tobacco values in terms of uh, imports are just not going to be the same as they were prior to this uh, rebellious activity going on. Intelligence findings prompted Charles II's Privy Council to ship over such fundamental necessities as hand grenades guns, powder, and putting down the rebellion, along with the possibility of sending troops into Virginia. Now, remember, folks, America, England, were separated by 3,000 miles across the ocean, so we've got to keep in mind in 1676, we don't have internet, we don't have a telephone, we don't have, we don't have breaking news um, alerts. So, England does not know, I mean, yes, they got some early information about what was going on in the spring of 1676, but they don't, they don't know now what has already um, taken place. In other words, they're not aware that Jamestown was set ablaze. They are not aware that this rebellion did, in fact, um, go through to where, um, to where people's lives have changed. Now, in, now, on October the 1st of 1676, Charles II's Cabinet Council convened by reading multiple reports, letters, and declarations from Virginia per the June General Assembly session, including Nathaniel Bacon's Declaration of the People. You know, it was his, his version of listing all the grievances against Governor William Berkeley and the Council of State and and for all those whom were loyal to the uh, governor. Remember, uh, Nathaniel Bacon and his followers were convinced that uh, Governor Berkeley purposely um, manipulated relations with the Indians to where, to, where the in, to where Bacon and his followers felt that the Indians were treat, being treated better than they were. Just an example of one of the handful of grievances, but just as a reminder to point out, Charles II signed a series of orders for putting down the rebellion to addressing uh, the most fundamental of common complaints. He also approved to have a thousand soldiers sent to Virginia. All of this is great, but once again, King Charles II and his cabinet council, unfortunately, do not have access to breaking news. 
Of course, nobody does in 1676. And I should point out that, you know, if you did receive news, how old do you think the news itself might have been by the time you got it? Okay, let's say you got news that was 3,000 miles across the ocean from Virginia to England or vice versa. It might be fair to say that the news you receive would be about five weeks old at best. So is it fair to say that a lot would have transpired in five weeks? Sure. Is it fair to say that the person whom could have sent you um, could have sent you uh, the news itself? Is it fair to say that even that person alone might not still be alive? I mean, remember, we have we have to take into consideration that even writing letters and sending them across the ocean, we, we didn't have such things as two-day priority mail in 1676. So even when you wanted to write someone a letter, it probably might take about five weeks at best before um, the recipient 3,000 miles away would finally get your letter and know what was going on via the opposite side of the uh, ocean. So we must take into consideration that um, getting the word out in terms of news, I mean, we sh back then it was something that should not have um, never have been taken for granted considering that uh, communication methods were far, were much more different compared to today's instant 24-7 access of, um, of instantaneous news. Here's another question to think about. When did Governor Berkeley's side of the story finally arrive into Charles II's hands? Remember, both Governor Berkeley and Nathaniel Bacon each wrote their own sides to the story. That infamous saying, two sides to the story. Well, King Charles II received Governor Berkeley's side of the story come mid-October. Charles II offered substantial reward he offered a substantial reward for Nathaniel Bacon's capture, which included extending amnesty for all Bacon followers if, willing, if they were willing to surrender within 20 days after the king's proclamation notice had been officially heard in Virginia. Does anybody know what an amnesty is? It's a mass pardon, or what we call mass pardoning, of more than obviously more than one person in this case we're talking probably at best well over a hundred um, followers easily over a hundred followers uh, whom are loyal to Nathaniel Bacon but uh, governor I mean not governor uh, King Charles II not only has offered a substantial reward for Bacon's capture but he is issue he's going as far as um, being uh, willing to extend an amnesty, a mass pardon for all of those followers whom would be willing to surrender within 20 days after the, after the king's proclamation notice had been officially heard in Virginia. So he's trying to, um, I don't know if I'd say sweeten the pot, he's trying to um, be fair to say, hey, look, you know, I don't excuse your, I don't excuse you all followers for following along with this hothead but if you do uh, resubmit your authority to king and country, all of you will be a part of what's called an amnesty, a mass pardon. Now, October the 27th of 1676, Charles II signed a proclamation. But little did he know 
listen to this folks, pay very, very careful attention. Little did King Charles II know that the rebel rouser, a.k.a. Nathaniel Bacon, had died the same day of October 27, 1676. Was Nathaniel Bacon executed? True or false? Believe it or not, the answer is false. So I'm sure many of you are now wondering, how in the world did this guy die if he wasn't executed? He died from an internal disease. And I, want, and I believe he died from uh, dysentery. Well, I'm sure some of you are now wondering, okay, Nathaniel Bacon's dead. Do things return to normal? That's wishful thinking. As a matter of fact, we're going to find out, find out whether or not Bacon's death did result in uh, some form of a return to normalcy. But in the meantime, I'm going to have myself a sip of tea here, and then I'll be right back in just a moment, and I'll give you all a moment to uh, ponder uh, some thoughts about what we're going to be coming up on here next. Matter of fact, you all might be interested in knowing that the tea I'm drinking is uh, Bohia tea. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, why in the world would I want to tell you all what kind of tea I'm drinking? Well, the reason I mentioned Bohia tea is for those of you who were with me when we did um, American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution by Harlow Giles Unger. Remember one of the teas that the um, one of the types of tea that um, got dumped into the Boston Harbor on December the 16th of 1773. There were a couple of different teas. Um, one was Hyson and the other was Bohia. And those teas actually derived from uh, the eastern province of one of uh, China's eastern provinces, but it was all part of the um, East India Tea Company. So, believe it or not, uh, when my wife and I were in uh, Williamsburg um, the previous weekend, uh, I decided to uh, pick up a package of some Bohia tea, and therefore I'm drinking um, a piece of history. And I'll actually have to admit, folks, that Bohia tea is very, very good. It's got a little bit of a smoky flavor to it. It's got hints of cinnamon. So, as much as I love history and as much as I enjoyed learning about the Boston Tea Party, I will have to admit that I don't, uh, I don't have any desires whatsoever to dump any chests of tea into any body of water. But believe it or not, there still is a chest of tea fully preserved up in uh, Boston that you can actually see at the uh, Boston uh, Tea Party Museum. So anyways, uh, back to what we are uh, focusing on with uh, Tales from a Revolution, Bacon's Rebellion, and the Transformation of Early America. Our next question is the following. Despite Nathaniel Bacon's passing, did the rebellion, a.k.a. movement, die with him? How many of you all think that the movement died with him when he died himself? Well, as much as I would love to say Yes, the answer actually is no. And, and the reason I say this is because even after Nathaniel Bacon's death, more fighting would ensue, along with an ever-expanding increase behind rebel extremism regarding politics. It should be worth mentioning that prior to Nathaniel Bacon's passing, Nathaniel Bacon him, himself was smart enough to implement 
a command structure, not just a command structure, but a solid command structure that included a network of posts and forts. So in other words, Nathaniel Bacon knew that, that there was always some likelihood that he could die, whether it was from means of violence or perhaps die from a disease that maybe he had no control over. But one thing he did have control over and he actually prevailed on it, was implementing a solid command structure that gave uh, people within his inner, inner circle command of the movement. In other words, when he died, he would know that there would be people in line not, not only willing to take his place, but whom, whom shared the same ideals and uh, principles as he did to where this fight would still go on. Not just perhaps from a year from now, but who knows, a fight that could still be in play five years from now. And, you know, even in today's time, we see in the world around us where there are, how do I say it? not to get political or anything, but there are um, extremist groups in various uh, parts of the world where if their leader dies, it's fair to say that uh, most of those organizations or groups already have people in line ready to take the top guru's place or the top deputy commander's place. In other words, there will be people below whom are willing to step up to the plate and uh, die for the same causes as those whom uh, orchestrate the whole uh, network itself. So what I found uh, interesting here is that um, I figured it'd be worth mentioning some names of people whom are within the um, command structure that Nathaniel Bacon um, established. Some people's names have already been mentioned, but there have been some that I know have not. A fellow by the name of uh, William Rookin, his last name is spelled R-O-O-K-I-N, he commanded a force whom had posts along the south side of the James River. Whereas the north side of the James had a hundred rebels stationed at Berkeley's, at uh, Governor William Berkeley's Green Spring Estate. Along the York River, there were four posts in uh, Gloucester County. Men like Richard Lawrence, whom was the mastermind behind Bacon's Rebellion. Okay, that, of course, I know it would be easy to say that Bacon's Rebellion, we all would have thought all this time that Nathaniel Bacon was the, his own mastermind behind it, but no. Uh, Richard Lawrence uh, was Nathaniel Bacon's chief mastermind planner. Other uh, top-level men from this inner circle would have included William Drummond, uh, former governor of North Carolina, and of course men like William Byrd and James Cruz, men of high-profiled status whom conspired in ousting Governor William Berkeley from power. So another reminder here, folks, is that those whom agree to acts of conspiracy are not always from the lower from the lower tier ranks of society. History has proven that uh, those whom engage in acts of um, conspiracy are from the upper um, ranks of society. As basically, in a sense, not what I mean by upper ranks. I'm not talking about just those who are wealthy, upper middle class. But what I mean by upper ranks here is that they, those who participate in conspiracies are, are those directly from the government. Uh, we have to remember that, the, that just because acts of conspiracy um, 
take place, it doesn't mean that they're confined to those from the outside. History has proven that uh, many of instances where acts of conspiracy took place, that it, it involved uh, inner workings. And that has been going on since the beginning of time. So it's just something that uh, should uh, be reminded. Now, uh, who officially succeeded in replacing Nathaniel Bacon? I'm sure some of you are, are wondering, you know, based upon the names I just mentioned a moment ago, I'm sure some of you probably might think to yourselves, well, why not Richard Lawrence? He was the mastermind behind it. He, he probably should be the one replacing Nathaniel Bacon. Why not uh, William Byrd and James Cruz? I would have thought the same thing, too, but it turns out that it was none of those men it turns out that the man whom replaced Nathaniel Bacon was a Mr. Joseph Ingram. His last name is spelled I-N-G-R-A-M, Ingram. It turns out that uh, he is a native of Virginia, whom was born sometime before 1644 in Northumberland County. And, of course, Northumberland County is located in Virginia's northern neck. Uh, for those of you uh, who are familiar with the northern neck, um, you know, when I think of the Northern Neck, um, I think of Northumberland, um, Essex, uh, Matthews, uh, Westmoreland, uh, King George, uh, just to name a, a few of the uh, counties um, in the uh, Northern Neck. But I do know that um, in Northumberland, there is a, um, a town called uh, Reedville. And why is Reedville important? Well, Reedville was named after um, a fellow by the name of Elijah Reed, whom established the Menhaden fishing industry in the post-Civil War era. And from, and from uh, 1914 up until the time World War I ended, I kid you not, folks, Reedville, Virginia was one of the um, richest uh, towns in America in terms of uh, per capita income. Uh, the last time I was in Reedville, it was about... Oh, 15 years ago, and when my wife and I were there, we drove along the main drag. And the houses you see, after learning about that uh, piece of trivia, I could see just how um, prominent in, in terms of uh, Reedville's status would have been during World War I. Uh, but for a brief period of time, uh, Reedville, Virginia, up in Virginia's northern neck, had the uh, unique distinction during the World War I era of being the richest uh, town in America in terms of a uh, per capita income. But I think it might probably would be fair to say that a lot of that also might have had to have done with the uh, Menhaden fishing industry. So anyways, yes, so uh, Joseph Ingram was in fact um, a native of uh, Northumberland County. And the reason why um, Joseph Ingram is important not just because the fact that he replaced Nathaniel Bacon, but we're going to learn here in just a moment why Joseph Ingram is upset. There's a reason why somebody, not just somebody, but a group of people can be upset over something, for better or for worse. In 1646, Governor William Berkeley signed a peace treaty with the Powhatan Nation. We're going to find out why he signed the peace treaty and why it would have upset men like Joseph Ingram and others. Well, for starters, Joseph Ingram, going into 1646 and after, 
he was an indentured servant. Okay, and when one's an indentured servant, they are usually working about five to seven years per their contract. And within that time frame, once they have completed all those years of servitude, not only do they get their freedom, but they will also be allowed to own X number of acres of land. So for John Ingram, he was promised 100 acres of land after many years of hard work. However, Governor Berkeley did something of the opposite. He reneged on um, John Ingram and other um, indentured servants. He signed uh, this peace treaty with the Powhatan Nation in 1646. The treaty itself, the treaty initiated meant that the land originally promised to indentured servants like John Ingram now became Powhatan territory. The Treaty of 1646, the reason why this treaty was done, folks, was because Governor William Berkeley was afraid that um, another war could ensue between the Powhatans and the Anglos, being the English. Because two years earlier, in 1644, a second Indian uprising occurred, just a little over 20 years after the first one had done so in 1622, the Indian Uprising of 1644 led to the killing of 400 English settlers, about 10% of Jamestown's population. So Governor William Berkeley signed this peace treaty because he wanted to avoid future conflicts with the Powhatan Nation, given what had taken place just two years beforehand. Without the 1646 peace treaty, it would have been a matter of time before a third Powhatan or Anglo war broke out. Indentured servants like John Ingram felt betrayed by Governor Berkeley. This was a situation here, folks, where it was a love-hate matter. Okay, you do have to applaud Governor Berkeley for going above and beyond and trying to modify existing um, bad blood between the English and the Indians. He's trying to do something different to stave off further conflict. At the same time, he may have achieved peace, but he didn't achieve peace with the indentured servants like John Ingram. John Ingram and his group of um, his other uh, colleagues or group of indentured servants all feel betrayed. They feel as though the governor has um, has is playing favorites. And is it fair to say even 30 years later, when Nathaniel Bacon issued that infamous um, declaration, what was it again, folks? It was that uh, infamous uh, declaration of the people. And one of the uh, grievances was that Bacon had been, um, had been doing more things for, um, for the Indians and not enough for, for the, uh, of the uh, English faith or the English race. So I could see how men like Joseph Ingram would have wanted to have uh, been a part of uh, Nathaniel Bacon's uh, posse. After learning of Nathaniel Bacon's death, what did William Berkeley instruct be done immediately? Okay. Governor Berkeley can breathe a sigh of relief, but he also knows, just like most other people whom are loyal to him, they all know that uh, they're not out of the woods. 
they know that there are men below Berkeley, I mean below uh, Bacon, whom are willing to carry on this fight and will go and will pretty much carry on the fight until the day they die. So in other words, nothing's changing. But what Governor Berkeley's doing on his end to modify the matter is that he is he is ordering men like Robert Beverly, who is a clerk of the General Assembly, to assemble a landing force with the mission to attack all forts and posts along the York River. And it proved to be a success for uh, Robert Beverly. His missions were so um, successful that 20 prisoners got captured, including immediate court-martialing of a Thomas Hansford, who was a rebel officer. He would be one of, of, the, one of 20 prisoners uh, charged with treason. Treason is a serious offense, folks. And in Virginia, even after, um, even after the uh, capital relocated from Jamestown to Williamsburg, treason was still considered to be a felony. And as we all know, felonies are more, you know, not, not that misdemeanors aren't bad onto themselves, but felonies are far more uh, severe than misdemeanors. And is it fair to say that felonies in that day and time could um, result in punishment by death? Yes. So treason onto itself merited um, hanging if found guilty. But by December of 1676, nearly 100 prisoners were captured and sent to uh, Virginia's eastern shore in a place called uh, what we now call Accomack County. There are two counties that make up Virginia's eastern shore, uh, Accomack and uh, Northampton. Uh, in Accomack, that's where, um, I believe in Accomack is where... Um, Cape Charles is located on the southern end, and then to the north, obviously, is Northampton, and that is where um, Shinkatig, uh, Assatig Islands are, uh, Wallops Island, where they where they do launch, uh, where NASA has a facility at Wallops Island where uh, rockets get launched. So, uh, so yes, when you think of the eastern shore, you think of uh, Accomack and uh, Northampton County. So. A hundred prisoners are now being sent over to Accomack, and I think it's probably fair that they're getting sent to the eastern shore, so this way they are not anywhere close to the mainland where others can be inspired by these prisoners to to take up their causes and, uh, and basically engage in the same um, acts. Now, who's Thomas Grantham? I don't expect you all to know Thomas about Thomas Grantham. I didn't know anything about this guy until I read the book. But he is a ship captain, and he is no stranger to sailing Virginia's waters. He spent many of months in Virginia negotiating business deals, or I should say transactions, and whom is whom would he be negotiating business deals or transactions with? Would they be with planters, uh, blacksmiths, or um, tanners? You know, the tanners are the ones who, um, who um, the, the tanning industry was, would have been with uh, hides and all that, um, leather hides, for example. The answer is choice A, planters. So he is doing uh, business deals or transactions with uh, the planters, uh, most notably those of the, plantation, the planter aristocracy, regarding their large tobacco shipments that are going to where, folks? England. 
In other words, he's, you know, he's, you know, like the like the broker. He's uh, establishing set prices as to how much it's going to cost to ship the tobacco overseas and what it could be sold for at market in um, in London's uh, port district, for example. So when visiting Jamestown, uh, Thomas Grantham often stayed with Richard Lawrence. <laughs> Isn't Richard Lawrence um, a hothead himself, too, up there with uh, the late Nathaniel Bacon? Yes. But did, uh, Thomas, did Thomas Grantham know at the time that Richard Lawrence would engage in an act of a conspiracy? Probably not. So Grantham often stayed with Richard Lawrence when visiting uh, Jamestown, he came back to Virginia during the winter of 1675-1676, but left in March of 1676 at the height of Governor Berkeley's handling of the conflicts surrounding the Susquehannock Indians. He commanded a vessel, and I know some of you are probably wondering why in the world should we be learning about the vessel he commanded. It's a pretty phenomenal uh, size, and... To command a vessel like this probably would be useful even in times of um, chaos and tension like what's going on now in Jamestown at this time. But the uh, vessel that um, Thomas Grantham, or rather I should say Captain Grantham, commanded, uh, the vessel was called the Concord. And we're not talking like, you know, the, the, con the famous Concord uh, airplanes from uh, France. But this was, a con this was called the Concord, C-O-N-C-O-R-D. It could transport up to 500 tons of uh, freight, 50 men, 32 guns. That's a big vessel, to say the least, folks. The Concorde was, in fact, the largest and most heavily armed merchant vessels. So we have to remember, folks, that merchant vessels, yes, they're transporting goods. But is it fair to say that merchant vessels need protection on the high seas as well? Sure. Think about it. if a merchant vessel can't protect itself on the high seas, then they're going to become easy prey for foreign nations whom are competing against them, not only for uh, land in, say, America, but really for, um, for supremacy along the water. So for Britain, their biggest uh, competitors are Spain, um, France, and maybe it's fair to say the Dutch. Because remember the Dutch, just before Bacon's Rebellion, the Dutch had uh, tried to uh, cause some uh, issues along Virginia's coast around 16, between 1672 1674. Yes. So, yeah, if these uh, commercial vessels of their time don't have um, ammunition to protect themselves with, then they are going to become easy targets. And not only will the captain and his crew lose their um, their goods, but they too will become uh, prisoners of war or just uh, prisoners themselves. Thomas Grantham favored. I think one of the one of one of the reasons I should say why he's important. Let me ask you this: Given that he knows uh, Richard Lawrence, and not so much that he knows Richard Lawrence, but he probably knows many of the other men whom are connected with. Um, Nathaniel Bacon's um, rebellious activities. But is Thomas Grantham a man whom favors diplomacy over war, or is he a man whom favors war over diplomacy? The answer is choice A. He favored diplomacy over war. Grantham was given permission 
he went before Governor Berkeley, and Governor Berkeley gave him permission to enter into Gloucester County, where he met with 800 men under Joseph Ingram's command. Grantham worked out an agreement where Governor Berkeley and the rebels accepted a, a ceasefire. What is a ceasefire, folks? It's a temporary suspension of fighting. In other words, it's a temporary suspension of fighting until further notice. In this case, both sides agreed to a temporary suspension of fighting until the king's troops arrived. <laughs> Remember, King Charles II um, issued in his declaration that he was going to send, uh, or one of his uh, commands, uh, that he would send a thousand troops over to uh, quell the uh, rebellion. Of course, little does King Charles II know that there's already been a rebellion going on, and little does he know that Jamestown has already been set ablaze. So, yes, they have agreed to stop fighting until the king's troops arrived. Uh, the ceasefire itself, the agreement itself was achieved into the morning, got achieved going into the morning hours of December 25th, 1676. I should point out that um, even back then, it's probably fair to say that Christmas was not commercialized in 1676. Of course, we all would like to think that perhaps the ceasefire will um, last more than a month. It we would hope that it would last even more than one week at best for starters. But I think we're going to find out here shortly that maybe the ceasefire uh, won't last as long as we would have hoped for. So the ceasefire agreement along the Ork River lasted how many days, folks? Did it last a full week, or did it last less than a full week? It lasted less than a full week. It only lasted three days. Why only three days? Well, rebel forces, believe it or not, had found ways to break the rules. Somebody, sadly, always finds a way to do something they shouldn't be doing. Even when you've agreed to do the exact opposite, there are those whom are willing to do the opposite, all in the names of just wanting to get a little revenge, all in the name of carrying on the deceased spirit in terms of the deceased spirit being that of Nathaniel Bacon. So, after the start of January 1677, um, the rebel forces had found uh, ways to break um, the ceasefire agreement. So, Thomas Grantham rode um, in rode to the post of um, Colonel John West, where he encountered large number of rebel participants. How many rebel participants do you think Thomas Grantham encountered going right into the start of January 1677? Did he encounter uh, 500 men? Did he encounter 650 or 1,000? The answer is choice B, 650 men. There were, 400, there were 400 Englishmen, folks. And then on top of that, there are 250 servants and slaves. That's quite a trio of, um, in, of um, participants. Now, all of these men had been promised their freedom um, by um, Nathaniel Bacon, most notably the servants and the slaves. Grantham himself, unfortunately, was the target of uh, death threats by the rebels. However, Grantham was not deterred by these threats. 
he uh, mustered up enough courage to broker a resolution where he offered all 650 men their freedom. He also went as far as being willing to give himself up as a hostage. In other words, he was willing to uh, become a hostage just to prevent uh, the worst case scenario from happening, folks. That is further um, violence, further escalations. So there is good news to report that many rebels surrendered and they went back to their homes. However, there still is a problem. 80 slaves and 20 servants remain defiant. So that means that 550 men, servants, and slaves actually did go, um, they did return back to their uh, dwellings, but 80 slaves and 20 servants didn't. They remained defiant. So what does Thomas Grantham do now? Well, once again, folks, he's got the upper hand. But by doing so, he has allowed rebels to board ship to board the ship from their post. He's letting them board a ship from their post. However, what these uh, what these eighty slaves and twenty servants don't realize is that Mister uh, that um, Captain Grantham removed the ship's canvas. By removing the ship's canvas, what could the ship no longer do? It could no longer sail. Without a canvas, you're not going to be able to go anywhere. So remember, it's not like the uh, slaves and the servants had a key to be able to turn the engine on and be able to go about their uh, rosy way. Um, no, we don't have that kind of technology at this time. So ultimately, in the end, the uh, 80 slaves and 20 servants were forced to accept Grantham's ultimatum. So I tell you, without uh, Captain Thomas Grantham, I can't imagine just how much more severe the violence would have become to where... Um, to, to where there would have been uh, further casualties, to where there would have been uh, further destruction along, say, the York River, uh, James River. I don't know if any uh, buildings were spared, given that Jamestown had been set ablaze, but the bottom line is that there just would have been far more violence and uprisings within the greater community. Captain Grantham oversaw the surrender of rebels which required them to march along, uh, for example, the York River's uh, shorelines. And by doing this, uh, it enabled uh, Captain Grantham to ensure that all weapons got turned over, along with administering oaths of obedience. And these oaths of obedience were going to where, folks? To king and country. So in other words, those whom surrendered were going to need to resubmit their oath, their allegiance to king and country, because if they don't submit their allegiance to king and country, what's going to happen? There's going to be more problems. And if they don't adhere to the rules of, of uh, adhering to proper allegiance, then maybe it's fair to say that these um, troublemakers, maybe, maybe they should be sentenced to death. I, I'm not trying to sound barbaric, folks, but we have to remember uh, what the rules of society were like in 1676. The they were far more different compared to today's um, world. Think about it. We're, I mean, just shot just a little over 345 years ago, uh, to say the least. Now, 
do any of you all think that fighting itself still took place in Virginia even after the start of January 1677 began? Believe it or not, uh, fighting still did take place. It, there was some fighting that took place along the Rappahannock River, uh, north of the York River, and the fighting itself remained um, exi in existence up until January 18th of 1677 when rebel troops finally surrendered to Robert Beverly's troops. Just because, uh, you know, your guru leader, Nathaniel Bacon, dies... It doesn't mean that others will continue, will no longer continue the fight. We have to be reminded of the fact that when the chief guru dies, there will always be someone in line if the organization's deeply committed to the causes that they will have ruler, they will have people in line ready to uh, carry on the fight. Now, January 22nd, 1677, uh, why is this an important date? Well, it turns out that William Berkeley officially returned to his Green Spring estate where he would await the capture of other rebels. And in the end, 23 men got hung for treason. 23 men. That doesn't seem like the biggest number, but to me, 23 men being hung for treason, I think that's a big number. To me, that sends a statement. To me, it... It, it's assuring knowing that Governor Berkeley and those who remain loyal to him are going above and beyond in restoring order. They are trying to do everything they can to get government back and up in line functioning. They are trying to send a message to those whom um, were smart enough to take, um, what do you call it, to... Um, to surrender and return back to their uh, properties through uh, Tom, Captain Grantham. They're trying to teach all of those whom did adhere to the rules that, hey, look, you were lucky. Captain Grantham stuck his neck out for you all. He didn't have to, but he wanted to because he favored diplomacy over war. So for those of you who were not hung and adhered to his rules or adhered to his commands, yeah, that was your warning. Because what do you think would happen if you disobeyed the rules and got caught trying to engage in acts of um, insurrection or acts of conspiracy a second time? You probably probably would get hung. No questions asked. You know, I've, I've learned this many of times in Williamsburg when my wife and I have visited. If you committed a crime such as theft, in other words, let's say you stole someone else's horse. Stealing a person's horse was a big deal because, for one, not everybody owned a horse. But two, if you did own a horse, that was a sign of your status in society, meaning you were high up uh, for the most part in, in society. But stealing a man's horse was stealing his livelihood. You know, yes, most people could get from point A to point B by horse and buggy, but a, a man could ride his horse without a buggy or a carriage from point A to point B. But stealing a man's horse really was his stealing his livelihood. So if you were found guilty of theft, in the, in the case of a horse theft, you were branded either on your thumb or on one of your other fingers, and it represented with the letter T. T meant theft. What this 
obviously means, folks, is that people know that you have been found guilty of a very serious offense. And this is something that you have to have that you will wear with you for the rest of your life. Let's just say you decided not to uh, learn from your lesson and engaged in a second act of theft. Not only will you be found guilty, but what do you think is going to happen? You're going to be sentenced to hang. In other words, you will get hanged for, for the offense. There will be no... Um, there will be no uh, no future readings of benefit of the clergy, and that's what they would do uh, when you were found guilty. You were uh, required to recite um, biblical lines, or what we call benefit of the clergy, meaning that you had learned your lesson, and that you knew that the benefit of the clergy itself was a form of pardon, but it was a a way. It was basically their way of saying, "Look, you um, you are aware that you are guilty of your offense." but that if you do this again, there will be no more benefit of the clergy opportunities. In other words, you will be, not only will you be found guilty the second time, but it will result in uh, death by hanging. So I think it's fair to say that it might be um, a blessing on one hand that maybe that, that the number of men uh, hung for treason wasn't higher than 23 but it's probably fair to say that, thank heavens, that uh, Thomas Grantham, had it not been for his presence, that had there been um, other, um, what do you call it, acts of uh, insurrection or um, just other uh, extreme rebellious activities without Thomas Grantham, I think it's fair to say that more uh, men would have been hung for treason. So the hangings didn't all happen in one place. Uh, we know that uh, we've learned, or I've learned rather, I should say that some of the hangings happened along Virginia's Eastern shore, uh, middle plantation that would, uh, eventually become, uh, Williamsburg. Uh, there were a handful of hangings that occurred in, uh, in the South side counties, which promoted, uh, the greatest level of rebellious activity. Other executions took place along the York river and last but not least, there was one, um, one man whom was left tied in chains on the gallows at West Point. And, of course, this isn't uh, West Point in terms of West Point, New York, folks. Uh, this, there is a place in Virginia called West Point, uh, which is not far from... Um, it's uh, somewhere not far from uh, the Northern Neck, but it's uh, in, um, in and around uh, New Kent County. But for this man, uh, who um, whom was left tied in chains on the gallows at West Point, his body was left to rot out in the open. Is it fair to say that that man's body was left to rot out in the open for a reason? Yes, perhaps to serve as a reminder of what happens when you do things that are so unbecoming that you meet an unfortunate circumstance. You meet an unfortunate way of dying, and it serves as a reminder of, of that your actions, that your actions alone are being watched. Your actions alone do carry um, consequences. Your actions alone are not to be taken lightly, and this man's body being left to rot out in the open should serve as a reminder to others that if they're not careful, and they stoop as low as he did, along with the other 22 men, then they will probably meet, then they can more than likely meet the same fate as he did. So we shouldn't be playing around. 
It's a shame Nathaniel Bacon didn't learn the lesson. It's a shame that it had to take him and his uh, followers. It's a shame that they had to go as far as, as they did. It didn't have to be this way, but they chose for it to. So uh, we've covered a lot of ground uh, in this uh, podcast segment. When I'm on the air again next, we're going to uh, talk about um, Governor William Berkeley's future. We're going to learn about um, whom uh, the government, whom the English government sided with, because that's a story unto itself. Remember, just because Nathaniel Bacon's dead, it didn't mean that the rebellion itself died with him. There still is unfinished business. We've got to do whatever it takes to learn about how Virginia is going to get out of this, because it's not a light switch, folks. We just don't have a light switch right here to turn on and off and say, okay, what happened um, the day before, that's ancient history. No. No, there still is a lot of uncertainty. So how the Virginia colony is going to get through this, it's going to take time, but it's also going to, um, it's going to take, um, it's going to take everybody coming together, but, but we are left to wonder, will everybody come together, even in the midst of a crisis that has already ensued? Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air with you all. Uh, thank you for being such ardent listeners. And um, I just want to say without you guys, I'm not sure where I would be, but you all have um, helped make this happen. So uh, wherever you all may live, uh, thank you again for your support. Continue to get the word out to those whom would like to podcast, but tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are uh, limitless. And once you get going, uh, the, the results go beyond the sky ceiling. Take care for now.